0: This is JU Israel Teacher's Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, senior JU Israel educator Michael Unterberg, And today, I would be alone, because Alan, unfortunately, is under the weather. But I am joined by a very special guest, Rabbi Dr. Barry Kislowitz. How are you, Barry? I'm doing well. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry Alan didn't make it. I'm here, of course, always with Ben, the engineer. Uh, let me just tell you what our topic is. Our topic today is going to be about the education system in Israel, how it works, and how parts of it really don't work. Um, just to give you some background on, I'm going to call you Barry. Is that okay? Perfect. Okay, because we're friends, and Barry was my former boss. Uh, he was the head of school at Fuchs Mizrahi. Uh, he was faculty at the at, uh, in the Educational Administration Department at Her- Herzl College, where I think is where you picked up a lot of insight into the Israeli school system, which mm-hmm. is why we asked you to be our guest for this. And he is the incoming Executive Director at Education for Impact, which hopefully will you'll fill us in a little bit what that is, just because it's interesting. And Barry is the author of Paring Parenting in Perspective which is a book about parenting from a from an ethical and religious Jewish perspective which you can buy at Amazon or order from Koren. How's that for plugging you? Perfect. Yeah. Perfect.
1: Yes. Okay. I make 32 cents on every book sale so. Which
0: is probably why you didn't ask me to plug it but I just <laughs> thought if we have, you know, we have uh it's not thousands of listeners but it's you know, 160 170 per episode and hopefully still climbing so that's not bad figured i'd uh i'd let it let it go now you moved here obviously originally you're from canada you moved to america because so originally from montreal canada Mm -hmm.
1: moved to america to attend yeshiva university to attend yu and then was in new york for undergrad and smicha at yu and my graduate degree at columbia Taught at Ramaz in their high school for a year. Your
0: graduate degree is in? Uh, Graduate
1: degree is in religion and education. Mm -hmm. So taught at Ramaz? Taught at Ramaz and then moved out to Cleveland where we were for 12 years where I was the principal of the middle school, the lower school, the head of school, just, you know, whatever job opened up that no one else was around to do, I switched into that job. Well,
0: anything they could find that they could give back, I'll I'll tell the truth, even though I apologize (laughs) to praise you in front of you, but anything that could be made better, they said, well, let's give that job to Barry. And uh, as somebody who I think is an exceptional educator and understands education, I was very curious to hear your insight. Since you've made Aliyah, you had a few different jobs, but the one at Herzog is the one that I think gave you your real insight into the Israeli education system. Now to listeners who aren't familiar with how things work here, how does the public school, private school, which meaning state funded is what we in America call public school. Correct. Although in the UK, I think public school means something else, but there's the, the state run school system, which I as an American think of as public school. How does that work here? What are the different divisions of it? Uh, So that, first
1: of all, just to put it in perspective, America is a unique system. So we'll talk about America primarily assuming that's what most people's reference point is. Yeah, most Um, of our
0: listeners, we have listeners from other English-speaking countries, but primarily our listeners are here in Israel, and their English speakers are from these states.
1: Right. So the primary issue that an American moving to Israel has in understanding the Israeli school system is Americans tend to think of Jewish schools as private schools. There is no Jewish public school in America. There's separation of church and state, or shul and state in this Mm -hmm. case. And so if you want Jewish education in America, you create a private school. Private schools in America could not possibly be more different than the public school education in Israel. Public school education in Israel is even different than public school education in America. So I'll start with the American perspective and then try and jump over. Public education in America is run not at the federal level primarily. It's run at the state level. So you have some level of decentralization. At the state level, it's then decentralized into school districts. So within each school district, you elect a school board, which is a lay elected official board that supervises a professional called the superintendent of schools who runs the schools in that district. You might have huge school districts like New York City, or you might have small districts like where we lived in Beachwood, Ohio. But fundamentally, schools are primarily controlled at the local level in the
0: public system. Why does that matter? Why why is it a big deal that local districts control the schools?
1: So it's a big deal. It has positives and negatives. So in, in the states, for example, part of the migration of upper middle class and middle class away from urban centers led to a slant in how school districts were aligned. So you can have places where school districts budget is sufficient to provide the wrestling team and the football team and AP science and anything you might want. And on the other hand, you have failing urban public schools who have no tax base in residence taxes, property taxes, or what primarily support the school system in the U.S. And so they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a downside. That's the downside. The upside is the people who are sending their kids to that school directly influence the course that that school takes. So I, as a resident of Cleveland or Beachwood, Ohio, can talk to the guy across the street who's sitting in the school board and say, you know, I think our science program is, is weak in this system. If I'm going to vote for you, I want to know what you're going to do about science. And I have that direct connection, that direct sort of influence.
0: So stakeholders and 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 management are very much in touch and have their finger on the pulse of the realities of the children they're educating. Exactly. Now,
1: for good or for bad, because the voter doesn't necessarily know what makes a good school, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't want our hospitals run by what the patient thinks is good medicine. Right. But it does force people to be responsive to local needs. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's what happens. And that's part of how it developed just based on America's uh, placement on the spectrum between socialism and uh, capitalism. It developed with a much more local control. Now, you then have private schools in America, which are completely allowed, encouraged, totally fine. People might have ideological opposition, but there's no legal opposition boundaries or or opposition or challenges in any way to setting up a private school. All you need to do is make your own budget. And basically, the state leaves you alone as long as you're preparing kids to graduate, you're doing your your basic job. Your parents are happy with you. You have a board you're basically fine to set up a private school. Which
0: Jews who go to day school or supplementary school, that's what they're used to. Set up by the community, run by the community, there's pluses and minuses. Exactly.
1: So as a head of school in Cleveland, I had to answer to my school board, Mm -hmm. which was comprised of parents, community members, other volunteers, all local, all responding to the direct situation, and whose primary and sole concern was what is good for the children of this one particular school. Wow. And so whatever we wanted to do... If the school board would agree to it, we could do, you know, we want to build an expanded wing. Okay, well, raise the money for it, justify it, pass it by the board, you can do it. We want to change the science program. Okay, well, make the case for it. Talk to the board. You have a meeting every three or four weeks. You can get things done at a very quick pace. Uh, You can be nimble. You can make changes. And you have complete control of your budget in aligning that budget to strategic priorities. Again, the board provides oversight but as the head of a private school, you're basically running a small business. Mm-hmm. And you have control over all aspects of that business.
0: Okay, I'm 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 girding my loins in fear for the contrasting part about Israel.
1: Okay. So, Israel in the first of all, you have to understand it's a public school, not a private school. So, as a person who was a parent in a private school, you expect the principal to think, "Oh, you're the customer." Here, You're not the customer. You're not paying anything, and if you are paying a little bit because you have a a tosefet for extra hours or anything like that, it's really irrelevant in the broader scheme of what this makes the school survive. Now, schools do need children, Mm -hmm. right? If you didn't, and you have more and more parent choice, that's and that's happened over the last twenty or so years. So schools do think more about marketing Mm -hmm. and think think about keeping the kids, but they still don't fully see the parent as the customer. Mm -hmm. And so if they're not seeing the parent as the customer, there will be principals who will respond to your phone call within an hour. And there'll be principals who don't necessarily care about your phone call and don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a huge, huge change. Let's layer onto that what the Israeli public school system is. So Israel, uh, and, and this we have to say is the caveat for everything, Israel is 70 years old. Mm -hmm. It's not had that much time to build all these various things. We're still finishing our roads. So public school is something that takes a long time to
0: refine. Well, to be fair, Israel hasn't jumped from crisis to crisis to deal with (laughs) emergency, (laughs) urgent, you know, life-threatening problems. So we've had plenty of space and time to think about this sort of...
1: Exactly. And for a 70-year-old country that is constantly dealing with life and death crises... We've done pretty darn well with the school system, but you still have to understand where it is and where it needs to go. Right.
0: So like... Right. And the point here isn't to condemn Israeli leadership for failing us, or it's about what needs to be improved. Exactly.
1: And understanding what is, because most parents interface with one single school. Right. So they are thinking about, well fourth grade teacher isn't really good. Right. They're not thinking about what systemic factors right. have led to the fact that you can't find a decent fourth grade teacher. Right. Those systemic factors go back to something that's shared amongst most countries that have started up from scratch. So the U.S., Israel, in a lot of ways are similar here. Schools are seen as a way of guaranteeing the success of the republic. Mm-hmm. So Thomas Jefferson in 1779 writes in a preamble to the bill that created Virginia State's public schools, if we don't educate all of the children, we won't have a population that can protect us for tyranny by voting mm-hmm. in elections. And that, that's fundamentally, schools are the pillar of the republic in early U.S. educational thought. Similar in Israel. Schools are intended to produce the Zionist Israel citizen. And the state, and and it was a very Russian influenced mm-hmm. ideology at the beginning of the state. Bangurian says we need public schools that are going to produce citizens who will guarantee the survival of the state. So let's do that.
0: And also, let- in a country without that isn't rich in resources, brain power and innovation becomes the major resource of the country. So it becomes an existential need to have educated, intelligent, informed citizens.
1: Yes, and not only educated and intelligent and informed, but ideologically aligned. Mm -hmm. Right? It's it's not enough for you to be free thinking. Right? We want you to be committed to the survival of the state, and that's part of what the public schools did in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and it's part of what the public schools do in Israel.
0: Well, or are supposed to do. Are supposed to do. Are supposed to do. Um,
1: That that's a word that will come back often. Supposed to. Um, And now Ben Gurion hits a challenge because. He's got a whole group of people who agree with him and say, great, let's do this. We're, right. we're all, broadly speaking, you know, secular Zionists, and we believe in building the country. And we're then also
0: very idealistic people who just, we're the founding mm-hmm. fathers. We want this experiment to succeed as best it can. And we're willing to give up a certain amount of personal freedom to make that happen.
1: Mm-hmm. And then he hits the religious camp. And the datizioni, datilumi, Zionist, religious, religious, um, basically say, that's good. We believe in that, but we want a different sort of education. We need religious education. And so essentially what the state does is it keeps the system centralized. Mm -hmm. It does not decentralize and say, well, everybody will run their own school. It says, we're going to have a centralized system, but we'll have two centralized systems. One's called Mamlachti, the public, and one that's called Chemed or Mamlachti Dati, which is the religious public school system. They're both completely centralized, and they run essentially on two parallel tracks into the Ministry of Education.
0: Not sharing resources, or... There are some resources that are shared, but... Essentially, it's parallel. They have different math
1: textbooks because the pictures that go in math textbooks for the public school system are not acceptable to the people running the religious school system. And those are not rece- not acceptable to those running the Haredi school system. So math, which you would think is a non-ideological subject. I mean, it is. <laughs> yes, but pictures apparently are not. Uh. So when Johnny has five apples, how are you gonna draw Johnny? So textbook companies, for example, produce three streams of textbooks. They have one base, and then they adjust it for each system. Um, And that process has continued. So Israel, rather than, again, rather than decentralizing, it keeps the system centralized and creates more and more centralized systems. So you have this public system.
0: I mean, that, that textbook thing sounds somewhat annoying and resource heavy, but it doesn't sound like a kid's ability to learn math would be directly impacted by that necessarily.
1: No, what it does is it wastes resources. Yeah, right. And a company in a country with limited resources yeah. and not a large enough economy of scale, right? Right. Textbook producers in California have an economy of scale that Israel will never achieve because right. we don't have the population. So the quality of textbooks is going to be poorer. Right. Um, and this makes it even more challenging. Right. But the point is more that. Israel's Ministry of Education reaction to diversity has been to create multiple centralized systems. Right. They also have the Haredi system, they have the Arab Israeli system and not to give responsibility to local centers.
0: And all of the each of those has its own centralized system: Haredi, religious Zionist, secular Arab. Correct. Now
1: they all meet up at the top at the CEO of the Ministry of Education and the Minister of Education. Mhm. But up until that last step, they have separate tracks.
0: Mm.
1: Now, and they do share some resources. They share some accounting. They share various pieces. Which I'm
0: sure they do very efficiently. Does, when you're, cause Possibly. A, <laughs> yeah. No, because sharing resources on the one hand is smart. On the other hand, leads to conflict. Correct. Correct.
1: Um, and regardless of what's come their way, they've held on to this centralized piece. And so if you go to visit a typical school, the, the teachers in that school are getting a paycheck signed by the Ministry of Education, not signed by the principal of the school. Mm. Right. So, so now imagine being a business owner and your employees are working
0: for someone else. I'm the principal. I feel a teacher is not doing a good job, but I'm not the boss.
1: Right. Or you're the principal and you feel a teacher is doing a good job but you're not the boss. Mm -hmm. The whole relationship between teachers and principals doesn't have that direct linkage that it does in a private school, Mm -hmm. right? So the teachers know their salaries coming from the ministry of education. They also know that they have certain guarantees based on union rights, et cetera. The principal knows that if he wants to get teachers to do things, he has limited resources. And in fact, he doesn't fully have a cash based budget. What he has in many cases, he or she has, is hours. I'm allowed
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, a few thousand hours of teacher time, and I have to allot that.
0: And I have to find people who will fill those time slots.
1: And allot those hours amongst the people. Mm-hmm. Um, based on recent reforms in public education, there was a reform a number of years ago called ozlit Mura, which changed how salaries work. There was another one called Ofek Hadash, which added things like, teacher presence time in school you have to be present in the building for a certain number of hours and teachers have a certain number of hours that they have to give to private lessons so the principal
0: can play with all those hours okay but it sounds like a you know like a real boon to teachers because once you're hired by the state you're in and you you get your hours guaranteed to you by the state It sounds like a sweet easy street job right right
1: unless you've ever had to visit bituach leumi in israel or the DMV anywhere, or the post office, and that's your experience as a teacher working with your quote-unquote employer, right? Your employer is this nameless, faceless, huge bureaucracy. Go negotiate for a raise. Go deal with an error in your paycheck. And so a lot of teacher preparation is actually devoted to understanding your paycheck, figuring out if you're getting paid the right amount, and figuring out what you need to do to keep moving up the salary scale because if you don't navigate that bureaucracy effectively doesn't matter how good you are in the classroom you're not going to make a
0: living because you're employed by the state not by the school exactly now it must be though like that problem that you said about re- like in America so you have this every district has its own separate budget so you have this poor distribution of district here in Israel every school must get equal distribution and have equal resources right if it's a
1: yes Every school essentially does. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, and we haven't talked about this yet. But in many instances, you have nonprofit organizations that are created to add additional support to schools. Mm-hmm. So you and I li- both live in Efrat. The Orotezion school system has an Amuta. They have a nonprofit which collects money from parents and uses that money to supplement what the government gives. You also have school networks. So you have things like the Amit network the Shivopnei Akiva network, the Ort network, the Darka network. These networks were founded around, uh, around high schools because the understanding was government budgets will never suffice to fund what you need for a decent high school. And so these networks do a whole lot of general fundraising. They also now wield a lot of political power because they represent 100 schools, not one school. And they do that to make their budgets work. The so it's still
0: the case, if you're wealthy, your kids go to a better school than if you come from, let's say, some, you know, immigrant community in the Negev.
1: So on the one hand, the networks like Amit and Darca are actually socially conscious networks. So mm-hmm. Darca, for example, works primarily and almost entirely with periphery schools. Mm-hmm. Amit does a lot of work with underprivileged areas. What's different is the students. Mm -hmm. So sending your kid to school in a school where every kid's parents are college-educated, every house has books in it, Mm -hmm. is very different than a school where no one's parents are college-educated, and most homes don't have books. You take the exact same set of resources on the school side, the exact same teachers, but the school culture is fundamentally shifted Mm -hmm. by geographic area, and and that's a lack of parity that no one has been able to solve because it's a parody based on demographic, geographical distribution. Well, it's
0: beyond the control of the educator. It has to do with history. Where did your parents immigrate from? Where did the parent, When did the parents immigrate mm-hmm. and how much they acculturated to Israel is essentially a modern Western country with a large population that didn't come from modern Western countries.
1: Right. Exactly. So if you live in the Negev, if you live in Sterot, you have access to a different type of schooling. Not because the government's giving different resources, but because the the demographic is a different demographic.
0: So I want to know about two more things. I want to know about the classrooms, and I want to know about the curriculum.
1: Okay, tell me more how about is the what Israeli you mean well, classrooms.
0: How is the Israeli classroom different than what we're used to in America? And you know, just as I, I think, not as a principal, I think as a teacher, when I walk into a classroom, you know, usually there's fifteen to twenty kids sitting at desks, ready, and I can do. You know, I have resources in the classroom, like a projector or science teacher has a lab and, and the kids are essentially willing to participate with, you know, there's discipline issues, but basically they understand that their job is to go with what it is I have to do and they'll be held accountable for that.
1: Okay. So let's start with the curriculum side.
0: Okay. The curriculum
1: side uh, works how you would expect it to work where one centralized office is trying to enforce adherence across hundreds of schools. Mm -hmm. It does that by legislation. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot publish a textbook in Israel without specific permission from the Ministry of Education. All curricula are published and have to have that authorization. And compared to a private school, you'll have much more in the way of textbooks that a teacher is working from and much less in the way of a teacher creating their own curriculum.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a much less creatively satisfying career here in Israel,
1: right? Or I would say differently: you have to check all the right boxes, mm-hmm. and then you can also be creative. Mm-hmm. But uh, but if you don't check the right boxes
0: first, you're going to have a problem. How much space is there for creativity after I've checked the box? Exactly
1: right. So so imagine an AP teacher in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching for AP. English. Mm -hmm. I can teach whatever I want, as long as I'm also teaching all the things they need to do well on the AP test. Right. That's true across the board here. Every subject. Every subject. Now, there is an influence to the fact that workbooks and textbooks are given out. It's so much easier Mm -hmm. to just teach what's given to me than to think from scratch. Now, and there are many, many creative teachers and creative educational systems in Israel. There are also many who respond as you would naturally respond to being given a workbook, which is to pass that workbook to the kids and say, do this, read this, fill this out.
0: That's human nature. You set a, an it's, expectation, then that's what you're going to rise to.
1: And it's the nature of the system. You know, There was a reform a number of years ago called which tried to give self-management to schools. If you chronicle the discussions and you look through the documents where each stage was developed, it started off with great intentions. Mm-hmm. They were going to give control to the schools. Mm-hmm. And then the central bureaucrats realized that they weren't going to have as much control.
0: Well, definitionally. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so they set up these hurdles of what you have to do to get control mm-hmm. and what you still have to fulfill and the boxes you still have to check to the point where a a safer bin who lets me in Israel, a self-managed school in Israel has much less freedom than I did as a principal in the U.S., more freedom than a typical public school. But it only could get so far.
0: So so why are Israeli kids and, and the statistics are are shocking. And in there are districts in Israel like the Negev and some places up north where on you know achievement tests, Israelis are scoring lower than what we think of as much more backwards countries in Eastern Europe or or even in what we think, you know, what we used to call third world countries. Israeli students in elementary school are doing poorly compared to Even our Western neighbors, what what is going, what is the misfire? It sounds like what you're saying is it's a problematic bureaucratic environment. Mm -hmm. Why does it, as a parent, feel like it's so much worse than that? The single most important factor
1: in your child's education is your child's teacher. If that teacher is put in a system where they see themselves as a bureaucrat, as a paquid, which is the the lingo used here, right? I'm working at the DMV. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful book called Up the Down Staircase written about mm-hmm. the absurdity of the U.S. public school system, mm-hmm. which very quickly will beat down a teacher and have that teacher just trying to survive.
0: How many kids are, is a teacher teaching in a classroom?
1: Um, it depends on the age. At the elementary school, at the younger elementary school level, it's somewhere around 30. Mm-hmm. By the time you're in high school, it can be up to 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a manageable amount of kids to have in a classroom. No, And the only way to get lower than that ratio is with these schools that have additional support. And that additional support pays for additional teacher hours, which allows you to split the classrooms.
0: And and how do the reform... I mean, it sounds like the, the state is controlling how many teachers teach in a school, even with additional funding, you have to give a certain number of teachers a certain number of hours, right? Right. So the state sets the minimum. Uh What you want, once you're doing the
1: minimum, you're allowed to do well beyond that, as long as you're not asking the state for money or resources. Mm -hmm. So you have the freedom to do it. The problem is because these other systems have developed, right, the Amit and these other places, the state gets away with providing insufficient funding, particularly high school level, and so if you don't have this outside source, now you're stuck.
0: Mm. And, and what role does standardized testing national, in other words, aside from designing the curricular textbooks, which make teachers less creative, what about the fact that, that in Israel, certainly in high school, you're taught to a national standard achievement test? What does that do to learning and to the student experience? So it's,
1: it's an interesting piece because in the U.S., you're used to standardized tests that everybody takes. Not everybody takes the Bagrut tests here. Not everybody gets a Bagrut diploma. You can graduate high school without a Bagrut diploma, mm-hmm. which is which is an absurd situation. Right. Because what are you graduating with? You can't do anything without a bagroot diploma. Right. What you can do is graduate high school, do your army service, and come back when you're a little bit more mature and, and do your own studying for a year or so and pass the bagruyote then.
0: How many what do you know percentages? I don't that's a hard question. Um, no, I don't have those statistics, but it's very common.
1: it's It's more common than you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, for anywhere from filling in one bagrut to filling in many baggruot, which means that the bagrut doesn't necessarily impact the same way a standardized test would impact. It's mm-hmm. not applied to all. It becomes something that certain kids uh, in what's called sometimes a safer uh, techni, a technical school as opposed to an academic school, we'll just say from the outset, we're not doing the bug root. It's just not something that's in our potential to accomplish. If we don't want to go to college, we're not doing the bug root. And that kind of slants you off into another system. So there has been this back and forth in Israel about whether or not to create the separate system of technical high schools as opposed to academic high schools. Technical high schools prepare you for essentially blue collar or Mm -hmm. on the edge between blue collar and white collar work, but no college. Um, the bug seems to slant it. So if you're not at a level where you're going to be able to take the bug
0: root, then you're not going to college. Right. But it's sort of, it's sort of upsetting as a teacher to learn that when I realized that so many students finish high school without passing the bug root, which is the graduation test to get to college. After the army, they just spend a few months re- learning it themselves and passing the Baguru, which means high school's like useless. Lo- just let them do that.
1: Right, right. So think about where high school is placed in the, the life cycle of a child here. In the U.S., high school comes immediately before college. Yeah. So the school's job is to prepare you for college. And right. they take that very seriously, certainly in a private school. Here, high school prepares you for the army. Right. And college is so far off in the distance that how can you think about the 15-year-old preparing him to enter college
0: somewhere around age 23? So you have overcrowded classrooms. You have teachers treated as bureaucrats who become bureaucrats. You have a centralized system that doesn't allow for any nimbleness or agility. And then you have kids who, to a large extent, are, don't love the subjects they're learning. School becomes much more of a chore and are not on a large scale ideologically aligned, we don't have fervent Zionists, whether in the secular or the religious school systems, who really are deeply involved in the mission of the country. I mean, these are serious challenges to the future of the state, right? Absolutely. Now, somehow Absolutely. Israelis pick up in, 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 in college and graduate school and achieve very well compared right. to other countries in the right. world.
1: So there's a couple of factors there. One is the educational influence of the army. Uh And and the army being a crucible to form your later success, Mm -hmm. especially now with the option of going into technologically oriented units and sections of the army. The other factor, which we haven't talked about is what's often termed islands of innovation. Mm -hmm. There are many, many wonderful things that are happening. Those things are not systemic yet, Mm -hmm. but there are things like uh, the Amit Network's Gogia Center for Pedagogic Innovation in Ranana, which is used to train teachers. There are things like Avne Rosha, which is an excellent principal training institute established nationally, although it can't quite serve. It can't, doesn't have the capacity to handle the training of all the principals we need. Mm-hmm. There are um, various innovation pieces going on around the country. Kids who get exposed to those end up being influenced by these. Really motivated, interesting people. Uh, there's an entire incubator for educational technology in Yerucham. Um, and part of what's necessary right now is figuring out how to turn those islands of innovation into a system innovation and, and how to systematize it and integrate it into the system, which is a CASH-22 because when you integrate innovation right. into the system, it becomes less innovative.
0: Right, the creativity is happening bec- at the nimble, small level. Exactly, exactly. Okay, but there should still, that should still, I don't know, trickle up to, even if these islands of innovation bec- still remain islands, at least what they create at some point should spill over and change the paradigm here. I, I always feel as a, as a parent who was a teacher in the States, I feel like Israeli pedagogy is like 50, 60 years behind what we know about how students learn. So that's true in some schools. It's not true in all schools.
1: Um, Unfortunately, in many ways, the religious school system lags behind Mm. because of the traditional values of religion and because they're worried about so many more things. Uh, It is not by and large as pedagogically innovative Mm. as the secular school system. As a religious parent, you're often choosing religious school A or B. As a secular parent, you might choose the democratic school or the uh, science high school or any one of another options which mm-hmm. will tend to greater innovation. Um, the, the question is how to create that kind of paradigm shift which fosters this innovation. Mm-hmm. right? And that's where it's opposed to the centralized approach.
0: And you would think that that would be so naturally Israeli a startup nation. You would think that that you would see that and you're but you are saying listen your presentation today is much more optimistic than I feel. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad to hear that you feel like there are things going on that should have results. Over the next 30 years, we should see some of these things grow into maturation, no?
1: Right. I I definitely think so. I think what you have to know about Israel is it's a country that at once both loves the system and fights the system. Mm -hmm. So it needs to have a system because that's what it needs to fight. Right. Uh, So I don't honestly think that the centralized system will go away,
0: Mm. but- even the, though it's at the heart of so many of the problems, correct. But
1: th- there needs to be something to rally against, mm-hmm. and there's this fear of it going away. And the people with the greatest power are the ones whose interests align with keeping the system. Yeah, that's the problem. So, so all of that augurs for the fact that the system will stay. But at the same time, startup nation isn't that old, mm-hmm. right? It, is, it hasn't been that many years. No. And it's bleeding into the educational sector more recently. So a lot of these initiatives that I'm talking about are not more than five to ten years old. And as those mature, they may find themselves bleeding into the system more. And if they can do that without being absorbed and transformed into the system, then they can have a more serious impact.
0: Well, you know... I really we did this episode because enlisting challenges that Israel has a few months ago, we got a lot of feedback that people weren't aware there were problems with the education system. I thought this would be a very depressing episode <laughs> and it is because it you know, talking about where we are. But you're saying that there are there are real, you know, shoots of grass popping through the concrete that there's things that are gonna burst through, hopefully, and change the change the equation.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, I think we ha- we're going to have to – we're a little over time, so I think we'll have to qu- bring you back to talk about EFI, but just in like two sentences, can you tell me what it is you're taking on now?
1: Yeah. So Educating for Impact is an organization that is the result of a consortium of a number of philanthropies and actually working in partnership with the Ministry of Diaspora and Education in Israel to – support schools in small Jewish communities in Europe, support Jewish day schools in these communities, communities with as few as a thousand Jews in them that would like to guarantee their own Jewish future and have schools that are often too small or don't have the resources or don't have teachers. And so we essentially do a holistic strategic planning process starting from the community level because we understand that schools are in the system dynamic of the community And working first at the community level and then at the school level over a four-year process to try and enable those schools to enact their Jewish mission, however they define the Jewish mission according to their own terms.
0: So it's seeding Jewish education in these remote communities that almost everyone's forgotten about and trying to rescue these Jews from assimilation or... Uh,
1: Yes. So I would say not rescue because our fundamental paradigm is partnership Mm -hmm. and we respect the fact that their local knowledge will always be greater than our Mm -hmm. outsider knowledge, but is trying to support their efforts to sustain their community. And these are communities that seem to sustain themselves against all odds. Helsinki Mm -hmm. has about a thousand Jews, but they've been there for over a hundred years and they're not deteriorating, but they also recognize that the coming 30 years will present new challenges that they haven't seen before. And if they want to counter those challenges and have a vibrant, thriving Jewish community, the key to that community is the school.
0: How many communities? We're currently
1: working with 15 communities. We add approximately four or five communities each additional
0: year. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Well, I know your schedule is super busy. It was hard to find the time. So I really very much appreciate it. And I hope that listeners, listen, I feel less despair about Israeli (laughs) schools now after listening to you. So I think this was the perfect way to do it because, again, I just thought this was going to be super depressing, but people needed to know. And you've actually made me much more optimistic. So personally, I thank you. And on our listeners behalf, I thank you. Thanks very much. My pleasure. It was great to be here. And thank you so much, Ben for your expertise and flexibility bye bye thanks so much for listening everybody Uh, this is the part where i remind you that we are the ju israel teachers lounge podcast and it's also the part where i ask you to subscribe to rate and review us and to share and recommend us in any way you can also we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast thanks so much for listening guys